This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rubberbank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rubberbank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalk's Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. Carbon is a word that's thrown around almost as much as sustainability these days. And just like sustainability, there is often confusion around what are we actually talking about and what does it mean within the context of my business. I'm your host, Blake Holgate, and today we're examining the role of carbon within food production systems, specifically the ability to generate revenue from carbon, and what are the key considerations that need to be taken into account when assessing how to incorporate carbon within food production systems. To have that conversation, I'm joined by someone with extensive knowledge and experience of all things forestry and carbon related. He's a director of the Forest Management Group, involved in a number of government and sector working groups on the topic, and is a facilitator of Rubberbank's very own carbon workshops for clients, Dave Janet. Dave, welcome to Growing Our Future podcast. Thanks very much, Blake. Glad to be here. Before we kick into it, Dave, I'm keen to hear a little bit about your background and career in, in forestry and, and carbon and, and what you're doing now and, and how you're interacting with farmers and, and helping them understand what opportunities represent within their food production systems. Yeah, sure. Well, I've been in the forest industry now for over 40 years. I started in early 1980s with the New Zealand Forest Service, did a forestry degree through Canterbury, came out of that and then established the business that I'm involved with now in around 1986. We've grown over that time to have around 40 staff operating over the South Island and lower part of the North Island. On the carbon side, um, we've traditionally been a pretty standard forest management company doing harvesting, managing forests for people. With the ETS has come along, we've now been involved with managing people's forests. Uh, we have around four to 500 participants we manage in the ETS, high percentage of those are farmers. So we're helping them plan, look at what strategies they can have on their farms to register what carbon may be there existing now and opportunities that may arise in other areas of their farm to the planting or regeneration of trees, both native and exotic. In that time, I'm also involved in, like you mentioned, some of the technical advisory group with MPI. That's where we're looking at the regulations and legislation around the ETS. So we don't make the decisions, but stuff gets past us and we give our, our thoughts on whether it's going to work properly or not. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, look, there has certainly been a, a significant increase from our clients and other farmers around carbon and a, a desire to get a greater understanding of what it could represent in terms of opportunities within their farming systems, but often a lack of knowledge or understanding around, well, exactly how do I go about tapping into that? And so I suppose the first question is, you know, are you able to briefly explain how you can earn income from carbon credits under the New Zealand Emissions Trading Scheme? Yeah, sure. I think the most important thing to understand about the Emissions Trading Scheme is to have trees that are eligible to earn carbon, be they native or exotic. The most important thing to understand is it's actually about land eligibility. And the key point is that the land had to be non-forest land at 1990. And since 1990, if it's become a forested through regeneration of native or planting of exotic trees, it potentially could be registered into the ETS and earn carbon. 
a lot of the work around our space and carbon is identifying for landowners what land could be eligible and what trees on their land that are there now are eligible for the ETS. So that land eligibility is probably the most important thing for landowners to understand. And it can lead to a lot of confusion because people see old indigenous forests, for example, or older pine trees and wonder why they can't earn carbon, but the land has to be non-forest land at 1990. Okay, so we've established it's non-forest land. We've signed up to the emissions trading scheme. Where do we go to from there? How do we turn that into cash, Dave? Okay, well, the first thing we find with farms, especially on our larger you know, dryland sheep and beef extensive farms, is to actually have a look at what you've got first. A lot of people are looking for something new that they may have to do, but in many cases, people have vegetation on their farms, on their eligible land, uh, which could be entered into the emissions trading scheme now. Now, for a lot of farms, especially more extensive ones, that often revolves around natural regeneration and native forest. Uh, so it's identifying what may have regenerated since 1990 that people take for granted because especially in the ETS, when you say indigenous forest, people think of tall, large native plants. But it can simply be regenerating manuka or kanuka or other native shrub species. And as long as you meet the forest definition of 30% canopy cover and five metres at maturity, and that's important to understand at maturity, um, that land could actually be eligible to go into the ETS and start earning carbon now. So in many cases, especially with indigenous, you're looking at areas that you may not perceive to be native forest, most people just call it scrub, but that could actually be the land that is eligible rather than the existing larger native forest. And the same with exotic trees. You may have had trees planted since 1990, um, which may seem to you to be not very large or big, but some of those areas could actually potentially be eligible to go into the ETS under, probably in these days, the older stuff under permanent. So yeah, there's options to look there. And then from there, the next stage is once you've identified that, looking at, okay, if I want to get into this, what land do I want to plant trees or may have? And that comes down to a process of determining if I'm going to put this in trees, I'm going to take it obviously out of production from farming systems that I'm using now, and what's the trade-off? So it's quite often working through trying to identify those areas of land on farms and what are the options, be it regenerating to native, planting native, planting exotics of different types, and looking at the carbon yields the costs associated and the returns that are associated with that. In our business, we uh, we have a saying, we call it the map of pain. Uh, people look at their property and usually someone can find something and then we ask them to go to the next level of put a bit more in. And then the third level is, you know, the blood's going to run out of your fingernails when you do this, but <laughs> have a look at it. And then sit down with the numbers and do some rational decision-making around your farming system, what you need to make that work versus what you want to achieve with carbon in that. And for everyone, that's a different solution. There's different answers. What are some of the key considerations that need, to, and you've touched on already a couple of them, but, you know, as they're making that evaluation, what should they sort of be thinking about when they're sort of determining if they enter the scheme, if they do enter the scheme, what are they entering under what format? I think the key important thing to understand is if you're going to put land into trees, it's a pretty permanent decision you're making to put that, be it through regeneration or planting. So that's the important thing to understand. You're, you're making a pretty permanent decision. If you want to go for timber production, the most important thing is to determine, is that land capable of growing good timber crop? Is it accessible for harvesting, engineering, to get that wood out in the future? And that comes down to your location and what you can grow with the climate that you're in and where the markets are. 
versus in some areas, people will have areas of land they may wish to plant which aren't going to probably be really feasible for a profitable timber harvest. And you're probably going to be more looking there at a permanent option. But again, it's important to understand the trees are going to be there permanently. So if you're going to go for permanent forest and you achieve, you can achieve carbon every year, earning it ongoing, you've got to understand that it's not a one-way street. Once you receive that carbon, if you sell it, there's an obligation if that forest is removed. If you harvest it in time and with permanent, that's after 50 years, you'll have to repay that carbon back. That's for exotic. The other system you can go into is averaging for timber, which will be the main one going forward from the beginning of next year, where, for example, if you planted radiata pine, you'll receive carbon for the first 16 years. It then stops. At harvest time, any time after age 16, you can harvest. You don't have to pay the carbon back, but you are obligated to re-put that land back into forest species. Now, if it's radiata, you don't need to put it back into that. You have the option of putting it into any other forest species. So that could be indigenous or other exotic species, but there's no more carbon uh, for that after that event when you've done the harvest, unless you're going to put it into permanent, but you've still got to stand down for quite a long period. So yeah, I think the important thing is, is to understand you're putting trees in, it's permanent. The cost of even removing a timber crop at the end, you'll have to repay the carbon. If you are going to go for timber, make sure that it's actually in a viable place to harvest for timber and all those things line up. You don't want to plant trees thinking you're going to harvest them and find one day they're not worth anything. So that analysis is important. And if you're going to go for permanent, um, at the moment you can put exotic trees in as well as indigenous as well. Yeah, so it's really balancing those up and what fits into your farming system, what fits in for your family and what your long-term goals are where you'd like to be. And that quite often revolves around succession and issues such as that as well. So it sounds like that's kind of one of the, the first decisions you're going to make is in, uh, that, that option, am I going for a production harvest crop, in which case you'll go into the averaging scheme and there'll be a lifespan or time frame on how long you're collecting credits for, or do you go for that permanent option where, where effectively you're earning carbon credits as long as that tree crop is growing and sequestering carbon? I suppose the other other decision listeners are often faced with is, well, well what tree crop shall I go with? What is the best option given my circumstances? Can you talk us through what the options are and what some of the thought processes could be around those different options, Dave? Yeah, sure. Well, under the ETS, as long as a tree is going to make five metres of maturity, it's eligible. Now, orchards aren't eligible for this. So you have a wide range of options in terms of tree species that wish to, you wish to use. So, for example, you also only need to make 30% canopy cover. So things such as wide space poplar planting is possible. You probably really want to be at an absolute minimum of around 80 to probably 100 stems per hectare, which is around 10 metres by 10 metres. And you do have to be careful that you maintain that 30% canopy cover. So it goes from very wide space trees up to full scale dense sort of timber plantations. So radiata pine would be the main species that is planted in New Zealand because it's very tolerant of a lot of sites, it's fast growing, comparable to other species it's cheap to establish and relatively easy. Uh, then you work through in terms of timber, you're probably looking at Douglas fir in some southern regions subject to wilding spread, you have to be very careful about that. Then you're into the cypresses, uh, potentially redwoods, probably more North Island, and some eucalypts in some places that are more specialised. And then some people may want to dabble off into other hardwoods like um, ash and all sorts of other things as well. So you've got a wide range of choices of what you want to do on that timber side. 
So in terms of carbon yield, radiata is very fast growing and gets a, a really good kick going after about three or four years. Some of the other species are slower to get off, but some of them, such as redwood, some of the cypresses, but especially redwoods on good sites in the North Island, after about age 18 to 20, the redwoods potentially will sequester more carbon than radiata will. And there's a lot of work going into that measurement and updating of those tables at the moment as well. So you have quite a wide range of options. You have to see what your climate, what your situation, what actually grows, um, and look at those. And it pays to get some good advice on that and see what they're going to do. But yeah, a lot of options. Same with the native. Native will grow in different species and different rates in different places. The thing to to be aware of indigenous forest, if you want to plant it, it's very expensive. It's not cheap. It requires a lot of ongoing maintenance for the first three to five years. And with the increasing wild feral animal populations that we have in New Zealand, you're sort of becoming more limited in many cases to planting non-palatable species uh, for the number of animals that will potentially just wander through and, and eat them all, <laughs> unfortunately. But natural regeneration in many cases is something that's, um, that's pretty powerful. You know, nature is a pretty powerful tool that we can use. It's slower, but it's free and just takes a bit of time. You shouldn't forget that New Zealand was once 80% covered in trees, so trees will naturally grow in many of these places. So you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there for people to utilise natural na- nature systems mm. to actually return a lot of land back to forest if they want to and are prepared to wait. And in terms of the respective returns from, say, your exotic pine versus your your natives, how does that compare in terms of the carbon credits that you'll be earning off the respective crops, Dave? Yeah, sure. So with radiata, it's faster growing. So if you actually look on reality, what's growing versus the lookup tables, you know, after age sort of 8 to 10, you can start to be generating 30 to even 40, 40, even 50 units a hectare. Um, indigenous on the the natural lookup tables is averaging probably four to five tonnes per hectare per year. Now, there's a lot of work going on within MPI to look at the native tables. We're probably going to see some more regional tables uh, developed in time potentially um, and specific tables for some native species. There's a lot of work being undertaken in the next year or so. So the reality is the exotic species will grow a lot faster and store a lot more carbon than native species. One thing, one thing to think about carbon and to consider it, you're essentially getting paid, to st- you're in a storage business, you're storing carbon. So think about a block of carbon being one tonne, which is effectively one cubic metre. So if you look out and see a forest, there's a lot of trees and a lot of wood and a lot of standing timber there, there's a lot of carbon. If you don't see very much, there's not much there. It's effectively like a warehouse. <laughs> if you're filling it up with lots of trees, there's lots of carbon. If there's not much growing there, there's not a lot of carbon. Well, that seems a good way to articulate it and, uh, and visualise it, Dave. And you know, and, and on that, often we have people that come to us and, and say, look, I've done the numbers, I know what I can earn off, off, off my property for carbon, I've tallied it up and it, and it looks quite impressive. What about the other side of the ledger though, the costs though, the costs of getting into the scheme, establishing the forest and maintaining it going forward? What are some of the probably key main costs that you just would probably flag that people need to be aware of to make sure they're doing the, the full calculation of what actually the return off that investment could look like? Well, costs are like, like in all parts of any primary production today, you know, we've got in a high inflationary environment, costs are going up. So the key thing is land preparation, How what is covering the land. For example, gorse and broom isn't considered to be a forest species, so you can clear that. But obviously there's a cost either mechanically raking or spraying that out. Um, access to the site for planters. There's a high demand for tree stocks and tree planters now. So we're seeing those costs rise, you know, very quickly. In fact, 
you wouldn't be hardly able to even get new trees for 2023 and 24's booking up fast for everybody. So it's just being aware you've actually got to plan carefully. You've got to order in advance. You have to commit to tree stocks. It's essentially now you have to pay up front for your trees. And same for planting. Good preparation, good tree stocks and good planting is essential as is good releasing. The one thing about forestry is you don't spare the horses when you're preparing the land and get good tree stocks and plant it well. If you plant your forest properly and do it correctly, a lot of your future problems will disappear. If you don't do it right and try and do it really cheaply, you could get yourself into all sorts of trouble because trying to resurrect a poor planting project is very difficult and very expensive and the results live with you for the next 20 to 40 years. So my one thing would be is to plan carefully, do good costings, get some good advice and use good tree stocks and good planters. Now, one of the criticisms we often hear around the emissions trading scheme is it in respect of forestry and carbon is it's quite a small box to get within the scheme and get recognised for your on-farm carbon. It's quite challenging and there's a lot of stuff that sits outside the emissions trading scheme. If you put your, you know, future looking hat on, do you see there's potential for, you know, the scope and criteria for plantings and or other forms of vegetation that sequest carbon on farm coming within the emissions trading scheme in the future, Dave? Uh, yeah, I think there's opportunity there. I think the thing to understand is the emissions trading scheme runs on a set of international rules about what's eligible and what's not. So there was an announcement last week, I think it was, where they were looking at potentially under the proposed Hiwakanaa scheme, taking the sequestration from there and seeing what's, they're saying, I think it was scientifically robust to be able to put into the ETS. And part of this is coming down to measuring that, that difference and getting it accepted internationally so it can be used going forward with New Zealand's contribution. Some of this is going to come down to how we can measure these smaller areas, be it um, shelter belts, scattered trees, riparian planting, etc. There's a cost to doing this, and the ETS is not a simple beast to navigate to get into. And, and once you're in there, there's quite heavy compliance about doing things correctly and reporting. So the cost of doing that can be quite onerous. And my earlier comment when I see what you see is what you get, <laughs> when you haven't got much and it's small stuff, you could actually be dealing with quite small areas of carbon. And I think, you know, it's understanding that some of these small areas, you have to weigh up the cost of how we're going to measure this and record it versus the benefit you're going to get. It's the old scenario. You could spend $100 to make 50 which doesn't really work. But I think in time, we're going to see more work done on remote sensing, et cetera, which will be able to record this stuff a lot better. And hopefully we'll get a way that's cheap and effective so that small areas, especially for farmers, can be recorded. But we need to make sure we can do that in a cost-effective manner and that we can get that recognised. Because if the government's going to give someone a credit for that and then they can't use it internationally, they have to then go and replace that credit and buy one to use it internationally. And you've got to remember the government as all of us, we just elect the board of directors every three years. So you mightn't like the board, but <laughs> that's what you vote for every three years. Yeah, and there's, there's another chance to review the board in a year's time, of course. Correct. <laughs> so with that in mind and, and potentially go, well, it may be going forward that the ETS isn't the best mechanism to recognise some form of on-farm sequestration. Is there opportunities to realise value for on-farm carbon sequestration that sits outside the emissions trading scheme, Dave, in any way or form? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where the voluntary carbon schemes could potentially come into play. We just need to be careful that we make sure that if we're going to use voluntary carbon schemes, they're, they're good schemes. 
and they abide by a whole set of, there are a lot of international rules about current voluntary schemes. Some are good, some are bad. And we just really need to make sure we pick the right schemes. And I know there's a line of work going on at the moment looking potentially where the government could run a registry system for voluntary carbon, setting the type of schemes and the criteria that need to be met. And that could be quite a good opportunity because hopefully it'll be lower cost. And then those that carbon could be recognised outside the ETS and then farmers could take that, sell it to people who want to offset using that stuff and bring money into their farms. Because um, I think that's the important thing. If we can recognise that, and I believe we will in time, it can be done, we can actually use that as a source of income for farms because that's what we need to try and do, improve not just offsetting but help to improve the profitability on a lot of the hill country farming. Do you want to explain maybe a little bit when you talk about the voluntary market, what you're referring to there as opposed to, I suppose, what I call the compliance emissions mm. trading scheme market? Yeah, sure. Well, there's a lot of companies, both here in New Zealand, but especially overseas, and you can argue rightly or wrongly, who want to be seen to do the right thing and are under increasing pressure from the ESG, environmentally social good uh, criteria that are required to operate under, and from shareholders and consumers. And they want to show that they are actually trying to do something. So they're looking to offset wherever they can. So they're not actually required in a regulatory environment to do this, but they do want to do that and they're looking around for those credits that they can buy and pay for them. So it's a different market. It's a very much a market-driven process where their customers and shareholders are saying, we want to see that you are doing something. So that, that's where that demand's coming from. They're not required by any regulation or regulatory thing such as the ETS to do it. So, yeah, I think that that market's going to definitely grow. It's very big and potentially be very large. Is that the trend, Dave, that there is increasing interest and growing demand from that the voluntary market around carbon? Yeah, we don't really deal a lot in the voluntary, but what we are seeing, even and this is just with the New Zealand companies, it's quite interesting, is some of them are actually wanting to um, get involved in forests, get offsets to offset their emissions, and that's really come from a demand from their shareholders and customers. And interestingly enough, they're buying offset credits and through the ETS quite often mainly, and they take those credits. And what you can do in the ETS, you can actually buy a credit and what you can do is you can actually destroy it so that it no longer becomes tradable. So th- these people really are putting with money where their mouth is. They're paying for an offset, saying we've actually done admitted that one tonne, we're going to buy an offset, and then we destroy the offset to account for that. So there's no opportunity for them to retrade that and make profit on it. What we're also seeing is that um, indigenous forest credits, native regeneration credits through the ETS are managing to achieve a premium anywhere between probably 10 to 15%. Um, We've had experience selling some of them through some systems of already achieving over $100 a tonne for credits that come through native sequestration or native planting through the ETS. So it's interesting that there is actually a premium there for that type of product coming through. Probably in the voluntary market, you won't achieve that higher price necessarily because ETS is recognised as a very stringent and probably one of the best forest offset schemes in the world. But it's interesting that we are seeing a premium being paid by people for native credits, and I just see that continuing to grow in time. I'm sure there'll be music to the ears of, of many New Zealand farmers that really like the idea of increased Indigenous plantings on, on, on farm, but perhaps not as keen on uh, on the pine option, but the economics of it are making it very compelling towards one and, and not the other at the moment. Yeah. On that note, you know, how long do you think landowners will be able to continue to get income from carbon from? Is this something that's going to continue indefinitely 
or is there some lifespan on this, which therefore landowners need to have a little bit of a think around the timing of you know when they enter the market or how long they sit out from the market from? Okay, now I'm not giving any financial advice here. <laughs> I think if you look at the if you take a step back and look at the emissions training scheme, the whole goal of the emissions training scheme is to achieve an objective, which is to reduce emissions, and it's going to do it through price. It's trying to price fossil fuel emissions and other emissions at a higher price that then forces people to change behaviour and not use it. So theoretically, in time, if it's a successful, there will not be any more fossil fuel being used, so there's no need to have carbon offsets. Well, I think it's going to be quite a long time. I really don't have any idea, but I, I personally think within the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see a lot of dramatic change. You only have to look at what all the international car companies are doing. You know, the EU has banned all internal combustion car sales from 2035. So they're going to be putting all their energy into anything but internal combustion engines. So I wouldn't like to have a guess, and please no one ever hold me to account for this, but <laughs> a price peak has got to be achieved sometime. And my, my, my guess is probably, you know, in the next 15 or 20 years we'll see that and it will start to then tail off. In saying that, I think permanent forests and especially indigenous forests will retain value and we may find those credits are sought after not just for their carbon offset but also for things such as biodiversity um, and those sort of things and I think that's a growing area of, of demand and will be there. So I think carbon will, make, will be retained, it will carry on. We may see the bulk exotic pine plantation stuff probably come off the boil first. I always term that as the pack and save option. And um, the boutique deli option, which is um, an indigenous and permanent integrated into landscapes with biodiversity, potentially could have a very long, long life cycle in a very long time. Because already we're seeing, for example, like I noted, that people are paying more for that now for a whole variety of reasons. People actually want to see the stuff and want to see that product. So just actually one quick note, Blake, your comment there about people wanting to see more indigenous. I think this is a real opportunity for a lot of farmers. I, and I drive around, I, I travel around a lot around New Zealand, I drive around and see a lot of land regenerating back to indigenous forest on farms. And this can just be Manuka and Kanuka. Um, and all I see is hundreds of millions of dollars sitting on the hill that people haven't tapped into. So you don't actually have to do anything. It's just working out what you may already have on your farm. And some people, clients, we've got to be very, very surprised about what they have and the income stream that's bringing to them. Um, and nature's providing it free. So it's a real opportunity for a lot of people. They haven't got the information, don't realise what's sitting on their farm. Yeah, and obviously the, the first step is, is seeking out that information and trying to understand within their operation, like you say, what, what do they already have sitting there? Whether you want to capitalise on it or not is, is ultimately your choice, I suppose, but at least understand what's in the kitty to start with. Well, actually, one little free hint I'll give out, a bit of free IP. <laughs> but um, one little key, we, we do this at the seminars we're giving with you guys with Rabobank, is that if, in terms of land eligibility for farmers, especially with native is if you can find some imagery around 1995, 96, not 1990, and it's clear then and it's since regenerated to native, you've probably got a pretty high probability that that's going to be eligible to go into the ETS. And luckily around 95 to 96, 97 is better imagery normally. So if people want to have a start, have a quick look, just go to your regional council websites. They have a lot of historical imagery quite often on them. And if you look around 95, 97 imagery, that land was clear then but has now got native regeneration on it, there's probably a good probability that would be eligible to go into these years. Okay, great stuff. You know, before we wrap up, I suppose the other aspect of it is we asked to 
planting trees and, and many of those trees will be planted for the timber as well, not just the carbon. What does the future state of the timber market look like, I suppose, Dave, if we're, if we're increasing the, the supply of timber now, if we look 30 years in, into the future, is there the, the, the risk that that timber crop that you're relying on, suddenly there isn't the, the demand to meet the increased supply? I think that's always a risk with anything we're, we're doing all the time. And, and I haven't got a crystal ball of what's going to happen in 25, 30 years. I think there's some quite interesting changes going on in the timber market um, in parts of New Zealand. And, and part of that's going to be around the decarbonisation process. And in some areas, for example, the whole biomass demand is going to get fascinating. Um, you've got a lot of the companies such as Fonterra looking to move out of coal. And if they're going to convert these plants to biomass, so it's probably going to be a combination of biomass and electricity. Um, there's going to see quite a large increase in demand for wood for fuel use. Um, there's a lot of talk around biofuels being made out of wood, which is probably going to be a bit more problematic because it's very expensive. But the last thing, comment I'd probably say is that if you look at um, some of the overseas companies that have, you know, in the last five years or even longer have been in New Zealand buying land for timber, and a lot of our forest estate is actually owned by overseas companies. You talk to those those people, and rightly or wrongly, their, their perception is that there's an increasing demand for wood in the world going forward. And the reason for coming to New Zealand is certainly that there's a carbon aspect, but everything they buy has to be for timber anyway. And a lot of them are still buying forests and even bare land plant with no carbon perspective simply from a timber return. So it's quite interesting. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. <laughs> but they have faith and they believe. But... I think the most important thing if you want to plant timber, what I said right at the start, make sure it's accessible, make sure it stacks up in terms of being able to get the logs out, the harvesting's not too difficult. You know, if you are a long, long way from market with huge carts over very difficult roads and difficult terrain, you have to think very carefully whether you should be planting trees for timber because it may not stack up. I think there's been some great insights you've provided there, Dave. Now, look, if we've got listeners that have, have suddenly got through this podcast and you've whet their appetite and they've gone, I'm actually suddenly would keen to learn a little bit more about this because there may be a potential within my business. Any, any tips or ideas or where they can go to get more information to dive a bit deeper? You mentioned the regional maps, which I think is a, is a great, one of the great first starting points. In, anywhere else they can do some further investigation? Uh, well, I think if you want to get some advice, you know, if you're a general, if you're a farmer out there and want to do something, the first place you probably should do is just go to Mr. Google and put a New Zealand Farm Forestry Association and go to their website. They've got a lot of really good information on, on farm plantings, especially around other species. So you can spend some time browsing through that. In terms of advice, you can go to the New Zealand Institute of Forestry website. They have registered forestry consultants for, for regions and areas there. And then just really ask around people you see who have been planting some trees and doing things and asking where they're getting advice from. Are they finding it good? Do they think it's right, et cetera? Do they like the people they're using? So I think through that, you'd, you'd probably find an avenue and some people who can help you. And I think even through your organisation, Blake, you've got, a, you've got a list of people that's been arranged that you, would, you can hand out to people as well who can give them advice and help in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we realise this is somewhere that once our clients or farmers sort of do their initial investigations, it is an area that you need really good advice um, and, and people that, that understand it really well. So that's we certainly encourage our clients to sort of seek out further knowledge and, and information before making any major decisions. Look, thanks, Dave. Really, really appreciate having you on the show. I think there's been, as I mentioned, some, some really 
great insights. You know, first one is, is understanding what you have in your bucket already and keeping in mind that that key deadline around 1990, you know, what was in forest then as opposed to what's been established afterwards is, is a key timeline to keep in mind. In terms of sort of identifying how much you've got is the idea of the storage unit. And the greater the mass of that storage unit, the likely the greater carbon that's sitting there. And also I think there was some really encouraging messages around the potential value of biodiversity when it links up as a carbon unit. And whilst that might not all be able to be realised now, if we look at some of the trends and direction of travel in respect of both carbon and the value that is increasingly put on biodiversity, there's you know a good chance that increasingly the opportunities relating to that on-farm indigenous vegetation that, as I mentioned, I know a lot of farmers really do value highly and want to maintain and, and increase if, if they can, there is the potential that that will get increasing recognition going forward. So I think there's some really good messages there. So again, thanks, Dave, and, and look forward to catching up again soon. Yep, thank you very much, Blake. Thank you for listening to Rabotalk's Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rabobank can support you to succeed in the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz.